Hey, this is Stephen, and I want to welcome you or welcome you back to the Grove Church Podcast. For more information or to find more resources like this one, be sure to visit us at grove.org. Thanks for listening, and I hope the following message is encouraging and meaningful to your life. Good morning, and as Stephen said, welcome to the Grove if you are just now joining us. We're so excited that you decided to take some time this Sunday to join us for worship. My name is Ali Shulman. I'm one of the pastors here, and this week we are continuing in our series called Rules of Engagement. Because if you're like me, this summer has been a tough one for dialogue. Suddenly, because of this pandemic, because of all the recent current events, there's been a lot of tough things to talk about. Things that we actually aren't used to talking about very much. And so many of us find ourselves in situations or places, in backyards or by pools, and unexpectedly entering into conversations we never expected to have. There's a lot of reasons we're not totally prepared for these, One is that we've been told that there are certain things that we just don't talk about. And now, all of a sudden, because of all that has happened in 2020, we're forced to talk about it, and our dialogue skills just aren't up to par. But we believe here at The Grove that these conversations are important, that they're actually what we're supposed to be doing, that they are a way to engage in this world that God gave us and a way to engage with others. So last week, we talked about how to prepare for these conversations, how to enter into them with the right goal in mind. So often, we enter into conversations with the wrong goal in mind. Inadvertently, we enter into conversations with the goal to win. That's what we want to do. We see our goal as to convince the other person to our side or to defeat that person. And so we shared the rule, walk into the room, not the ring. Walk into the room, not the ring, meaning let go of the boxing gloves when you enter into this conversation and instead start to look at how you can approach this conversation as a host, as someone who serves the other side, as someone who is making a condition safe for the other side to be heard. And this week, we're talking about what to do in the middle of those conversations. Because preparing for them is all well and good, but then sometimes you're at a friend's house or in someone's living room. It's casual, you definitely don't expect a hard conversation at all. You're just chatting, some small talk, and then all of a sudden, the room starts to get a little tense. Someone says something kind of off color or something you didn't expect, and then someone else responds, and then someone else responds, And then someone drops a bomb and you feel completely paralyzed if you're someone who withdraws from those conversations as conflict avoidant. Or on the other side, you start to engage more if you're the person who wants to fight, who wants to have that conversation. Either way, you feel a pit in your stomach. You start to hear yourself and your voice starts rising. Maybe you start pointing fingers at people you start to notice that something has changed. Something has changed in that conversation. And before you know it, someone is slamming a door, walking out of a conversation, saying horrific things. 
it gets ugly, fast. And you're left there thinking, how in the world did this happen? How did we get here? How did we get to this place? So that's what we're gonna talk about this week. We're gonna talk about the missteps that we take and offer another rule that we can use to engage in the middle of hard conversations. You see, I think the second misstep that we take when we approach conversations, especially those that are tough, even if we didn't expect them to be tough, is that we expect one resolution. We expect to agree. At the end of the day, even in the midst of tough conversations, we're hoping that that other person will agree with us. We'll agree with our ideas or our decisions about our life, that they'll acknowledge that we are right in some way, some capacity. And here's why. Agreement feels good. Agreement feels good. When someone acknowledges that your way of doing things that your decision to send your kid there or your decision to buy that or your thoughts or your feelings, when people agree with those things, you feel validated as a person. You feel safe. You see, when someone says they agree, we experience what social scientists call social inclusion or social belonging. And it's this thing, this very primitive neural pathway that has been in us for a long time. And what it does is that when we experience social inclusion, literally a pathway in our brain releases these feel-good chemicals, like serotonin and dopamine. It, it makes us feel good. It makes us feel like we belong to something. And the need to be a part of something, to belong to something, goes back to the caveman days, right? It makes sense that once upon a time, we needed to belong to a group in order to physically survive. So our brain learned that when we're included in the group, it feels wonderful. This is approving what we need to do. This is a benefit for us. And over time, life got safer. We didn't necessarily need to be part of a group, but that need to belong, well, we retained that. It remains true in us. You see, social inclusion is still so important to us and to our biology that when we experience social exclusion, when someone disagrees with us, when we feel like we don't belong, well, it actually activates something entirely different. It operates the same neural pathway where we experience physical pain. How crazy is that? That we experience social pain, social exclusion, in the same way that we experience physical pain. That's why it feels so high stakes to us when we feel excluded from a group. When we feel like we don't belong, we feel as desperate as when we are in physical threat. You see, that's why when we disagree, when you're in a conversation 
and someone brings up something or disputes you or it gets escalated and you feel really scared, it triggers our brain to think that we're socially excluded. You've experienced this, right? In conversation, maybe the atmosphere has already gotten a little tense and then someone says something that is completely opposite of what you said. And in that comment, it is implied that they disagree with you. And all of a sudden your shoulders start to tighten a little and your chest starts to pump a little bit harder because you recognize and your brain recognizes that you're being excluded from something, that you're not part of this group, that you don't belong. And I love this analogy and I use it a lot, but what happens in that moment is that our brain, which use this analogy from Dan Siegel. So this is your fist, you take your thumb underneath and you loop your fingers over it. And your fingers are your prefrontal cortex. They're what help you think, what, help, what helps you stay rational and calm in conversations. But when we feel threatened, when we release that neural pathway of physical pain, we flip our lid. Our prefrontal cortex completely disengages. And what we rely upon instead is that little tiny brain in the middle, sometimes called our animalistic brain. It's the brain that seeks out fight or flight, that helps our body operate in really good ways, but also in emotional situations is not so helpful. That's why in these tough conversations, you start to notice things about yourself, like physical symptoms, like your heart starts pounding or a pit in your stomach. You start to feel things strongly, maybe rage or anger or fear. It's why you start to notice behavioral changes, like you raising your voice or suddenly you become completely quiet. People who are experts in communication call this silence or violence in conversation. And you've seen that. You actually probably know which one you gravitate towards. Silence or violence, that's how those conversations go completely haywire. That's why you're in someone's living room and suddenly things get tense and then in five minutes, things are off the wall. People are yelling, someone's withdrawing. It's a pattern that we see over and over and over again. And a lot of it has to do with our biology. It has to do with the fact that our brain perceives the situation in front of us as a threat. That our brain looks at what's happening and says, well, if someone disagrees with us, then we are in peril, then we are stressed, and suddenly we can't rely on the good neural pathways that help us think through situations, and we're forced to rely on our animalistic brain that tells us that this is not a safe situation, and in turn, that the people that we're talking to are not safe people. So how do we come to a place where we can overcome this biology? How do we get to a place where we can overcome this brain of ours, this neural pathway that's been ingrained in us, that we can be able to be with people who we disagree with without flipping our lid? And maybe more importantly, how can we be in conversations and help other people, the people across from us, not flip their lid either? That's what we're gonna talk about today. So here's rule number two. Rule number two this week is focus on the link and not the distance. 
focus on the link and not the distance. You see, when things get heated, when we feel threatened, that's when we start to feel the distance between ourselves and the person across the table from us. Suddenly, we start to perceive them as a threat. And there feels like there's so much distance between us that it's impossible to overcome. Have you been in the middle of a heated conversation and you're talking and it's normal, then it gets tense, then it gets heated, and the thought pops into your mind of like, how are we even on the same planet? How are we even in the same family? How is this person saying this? This distance between us feels insurmountable. And often what we do in those moments is try to bridge the distance. That's what we want to do. We want to fix it. We want to bridge that distance either by dragging the other person towards us or by moving ourselves closer and closer to that person in an aggressive way. You see, we want to bridge the distance because that would feel better to us than the current situation that we're in. But here's the reality. The goal of bridging the distance has to sit on the back burner when a conversation goes heated. And here's why. When you're talking about facts and ideas and content, and that's usually what creates the distance between two people, when you're talking about that, it's, it's not enough to stay focused on those things because the person across from you can't hear you anymore. Once the conversation becomes unsafe for them, once they feel threatened, once their prefrontal cortex shuts off, and maybe yours, you can't bridge the distance anymore. You have to set that goal literally aside. And for many of us, this is very hard because we are programmed to want to agree with one another, to seek agreement with the person across from us. And so to set that goal aside feels like not the point. Surely we want to get to a conclusion where we agree on something. Surely that's where we're headed. But what if the resolution of good conversations was not agreement? And what if in those moments where things become heated, we made a choice? We made a choice to shift gears, to take on a new strategy, a strategy where agreement wasn't the focus, where we set that aside. And instead, we shifted our lens to seek out understanding understanding. So what if we sought not to agree with the person in front of us, but we sought to understand them? You see, that's what we mean when I say focus on the link. Reorient yourself in that conversation. Practically, what this looks like is when you start to notice the conversation change, when your body gets tense or you feel a pit in your stomach or you start to get angry or scared. Notice that about yourself. And instead of pursuing that same path of trying to bridge that distance, refocus your own attention to who you are in that moment and who that person is across the table. Can you start to ask yourself some questions in the middle of that conversation? Like, why are you having this conversation with this person in the first place? What value are they to you? 
Why are you thankful for them? What is it that links you together? What is there that exists between you that is deeper than agreement? And once you start to ask yourself those questions, your goal becomes to reinforce that link. And not just by sharing stories about why you two are friends or family, although that can be helpful and can uh, create a little bit of de-escalation, but it's rather to focus on what is the link between us that goes beyond agreement. You see, understanding is something different than agreement. Agreement focuses on content. What are you talking about? The ideas, the feelings, the decisions, the personal experiences, that's what agreement is about. It's like the surface level of a conversation. You're talking all about the content and that's what you're seeking to agree upon. But understanding, that's the level underneath that. Understanding focuses on the relationship, on the link between you. When you start shifting your perspective to one of understanding, your questions and your attitude towards the conversation start to change. All of a sudden, you're starting to ask questions like, okay, tell me a little bit more. What, what about your story led you to that conclusion? You're, restating what they say. You're clarifying with them over and over again. So what I, what I hear you saying is this, is that right? You're asking them about their personal commitments and how it led to the place that they are now. You see, everything changes when you start to take a stance of understanding. And what I think is so important and so fascinating is when you shift your goal from one of agreement to one of understanding, something starts to change in you. Something starts to shift in you. We often call this, for shorthand, empathy. You recognize that you are practicing empathy the skill that we all have access to, but often don't use in the middle of tough conversations. You see, empathy, the, the quickest definition, it's feeling with people. It's being able to take on the perspective of others without judgment. It's this idea that you can step into someone's shoes and not judge them or issue some type of ethical or moral judgment on them, but instead understand where they're coming from. To be able to repeat literally back to them what they're saying is a skill of empathy. And what social science researchers have found and are starting to uncover is maybe something we already knew, but it's that empathy drives human connection. The ability to empathize with the person across the table or the people in the room, that's what drives human connection. You see, empathy, not agreement, is what drives belonging. You see, here's what I think. 
I think our biology has been misprogrammed. I think for a lot of reasons, a biology that once served us is no longer serving us. But instead of changing and training our brain in new ways, which we can do, we've just kind of kept going on and on in the neural pathways that we're used to. We formed a habit of it, so to speak. And I think in particular, over the last 50 years, this has become more true, that we have become intensified, that these neural pathways have become more a reality. We have been programmed to believe that we can only feel belonging when we agree. We have been programmed to believe that agreement is the basis of belonging. And I have to say that over the last 50 years, the reason this is intensified has in part to do with the technology that we have been able to benefit from in so many ways, but it's connected us to so many more people that all of a sudden, we are finding lots of people who agree with us, at least on the surface. And we've started to form these things, these so-called echo chambers. Oh, and echo chambers, they feel nice, right? They feel good, they release all those feel-good chemicals. When you're on the internet and you write a post and someone likes it, and you feel agreed with, and you feel like, yes, these are my people, this is my tribe, or someone else like posts or likes something, and you're like, oh, they're part of something. I belong to them. You feel belonging, but you feel belonging on this superficial level. You feel belonging because you agree. And certainly, the internet has escalated the evolution of those echo chambers, but what's interesting and sad and something we need to work through is how those same echo chambers have reprogrammed our brains to the point where we can hardly tolerate being in the same room with people who disagree with us. That is a confession of mine, and I wonder if it's a confession of yours too. It's hard. It feels contentious, you feel in peril, you feel threatened because of the way our brain works when we're surrounded by people who disagree with us. And it is much easier to join those echo chambers where people do agree with us, where we feel like we belong, where we get that need inside of us, that primitive need met. But here's why I think empathy and entering into these tough conversations and using the skills that we have to feel with others gives us an alternative way, a way out of the divisiveness that we found ourselves in. Because when we empathize, we realize that agreement was never the basis of belonging. Have you ever been in a conversation, probably with someone that you have a really good bond or relationship with? someone whose values you understand, there's an understanding between you. It might be a family member or a friend or a really dear coworker. And you're in these conversations and you might be actively disagreeing, but somehow people stay calm and their prefrontal cortex stays engaged. And even though you disagreed, somehow at the end of the conversation, you feel closer. 
it's counterintuitive. It's kind of the opposite of how you thought it would work. You actually feel like you belong to the person across from you because you walked into that conversation, most likely, with a stance of empathy. You understood the link between you was more important than the distance. And that goal stayed at the top of your mind throughout that conversation, even when things get hard. That is a skill, and a skill that we are called to practice over and over and over again. And I actually think that scripture points very plainly to the use of this skill. Most obviously for me is in the letters that Paul writes to the churches that he planted. You see, I kind of feel bad for Paul because Jesus came and he died and he resurrected and he went back up to heaven and Paul, along with a few other folks, were in charge of getting this movement started. But do you know what was a little inconvenient about Jesus? is that his followers didn't all agree. Never did they all agree. If you actually look through the New Testament, it's very obvious they did not agree. I think this is uh, so obvious in who, we, who Jesus chose to be his disciples. You see, in his disciples, these 12 people, there was both Simon the Zealot, and zealot is not a passionate word, it's actually a political term in Jewish history, and it means someone who wanted to tear down the empire, who wanted to completely revolutionize the way politics ran. It was kind of a borderline of an anarchist, but they often resorted to violence. And then on the other side, you have Matthew. Matthew, who was a Jewish tax, tax collector who actually worked for the regime, who was part of the regime. Don't you know that those two men did not agree on anything that had to do with politics? And yet, for three years, they lived under the teachings of Jesus. How interesting is that? How interesting is it that their political views, or rather their differing political views, was not a prerequisite for following Jesus. It shouldn't be a surprise to us, really, because Jesus' followers were so diverse, not just in their personal experience and political views, where they came from. Over and over again, that's the message that Jesus preaches, is all are included, and believe it or not, all came. All sorts of types of people came, not from the same backgrounds or experiences. And surely, surely, they did not agree. And that is the crowd that Paul had to deal with. That diverse crowd in each city, that's how he had to try to teach them how to be followers of Jesus, how to be this thing they called the church. And so not surprisingly, Paul writes a lot about empathy. You see, he recognized that empathy is the strategy in the midst of disagreement to move past, to move past disagreement and get to a place of understanding. He says in Galatians, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He says in Romans, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. In 1 Corinthians, he says, if one member suffers, then all suffer. As one is rewarded, all are rewarded. It's constant in his letters, almost in every letter. There is a call to empathy. It was the number one strategy that Paul preached. 
when trying to teach these new followers of Jesus how to live together. And I want to close out our time here by reading a portion of one letter that I think sums it all up for us. Because what Paul understood is that agreement can't be the requirement to belonging. The belonging actually comes from something even bigger. He understood that humans come from a diverse range of experiences and therefore their ideas and opinions are equally as diverse. And that it's futile to start to try to gather people based on agreement because ideas change. Opinions change. Decisions change. That's the whole point of them. You're supposed to let them evolve over time and be informed by others. But what doesn't change for Paul, what never changed for Paul, was that the followers of Jesus, back then and now, belong to something greater. I had the privilege a couple weeks ago of watching Hamilton for the first time, like many of you. Oh my gosh, like exceeded expectations because I truly thought it was overblown. I thought everyone was lying. It was so good, but what it reminded me of was as I was watching, I was like, man, those founding fathers and mothers, they disagreed a lot, like to the point of dueling to the death. They disagreed on their ideas. That was the whole, the whole 12 years, right, of, of this forming this nation, but somehow, somehow they understood that they belonged to something greater. That they were trying to form something where humans could live together, even though they disagreed. And yes, they tried to share their ideas and sharpen each other as time went on to pool into this pool of shared meaning so that they could make better decisions about their lives, but they fundamentally understood that there was something more than just them and the people that agreed with them. And Paul understood that maybe at an even more profound level. He understood that we belong to something bigger than ourselves. In Galatians, he writes, so in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ and in Christ have been clothed with Christ. You see, you belong to something bigger, something we call Christ. And Christ means Messiah or anointed one, but there's also some understanding among theologians that it is this idea of the divine presence meeting the earthly presence. It's magnified and personified in Jesus, but this Christ, that's what we're adopted into. That's what we see in one another when we practice empathy. This idea that we have and share this divine presence with each other. Some people call it human connection. Some people call it what it means to be human. But this fundamental understanding that you belong to me and I belong to you. And he continues, he says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And let me tell you, I don't think this is Pollyannish. I don't think he's saying just throw out those identities, they don't matter. What he's saying is there is a unity, a belonging. Your need to belong is fulfilled, 
not through all those identities, but through the very fact that Christ dwells in you. The very fact that that presence of the divine is what is working in your life, and no matter who you sit across from, is working in theirs as well. So what would it look like? What would it look like for us if when these conversations went haywire, and they will, because our brains are programmed that way, we paused, we re-engaged in a new way, we focused on the link between us, this link of human connection, and not on the distance, that we chose the strategy of empathy and we let that strategy change us as well as the conversation. That is my prayer for us, that as we go forward in this week and in this month, this whole summer, this whole year, that we can be the people who are changing the course of tough conversations, who are choosing to believe that we belong to something greater than just the shallow surface of what we agree upon. Let me pray for our time together as we move forward in our week. Christ, who is both divine and human, who empathizes with us in the greatest way that we know possible. Lord, who is active in our lives and active in the people that we talk to no matter who they are. Lord, help us in the midst of hard conversations, unmask ourselves. To choose a different path, to choose the path of empathy. And hopes, Lord, that that path will change us, will change the tone of the conversation, will change the link between us and the people that we're talking to. And maybe one day, Lord, that it may change the world. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Dallas area, we would love for you to visit us. For directions, service times, and more info, visit us at grove.org.